Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 12 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that dives a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of the magazine, joined today by a pair of great guests. The first is Rick Wolfel, a regular GCI contributor who has not one but two stories in our November issue. Rick talked with Greg D'Antonio of Concord Country Club on the Pennsylvania side of the state line north of Delaware about their recent master plan, in-house renovation. Could become a trend in the industry. Rick also talked with a bunch of turf pros about what changes implemented this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic will disappear and which will stick around. Two very interesting stories. We talk about both of them in the first segment of the podcast. The second guest today is Brian Bressler. He's the equipment and shop manager at Medina Country Club. Brian is featured in the November issue in Lee Carr's story, Respect for the Titans, about how you can find and keep the right technicians. Brian brings more than 15 years of experience and perspective to a maintenance facility that holds more than $5 million in equipment inventory. I loved getting to know him a little bit. I think you will too. Brian Bressler, Rick Wolfel, after the break. My first guest again on this November episode of Beyond the Page, longtime golf course industry contributor Rick Wolfel. Rick out of Philadelphia, but that does not place any limits on the stories he writes, the people he talks with for GCI. Rick, you have two stories in the November issue, and let's start with the cover story, which is about Concord Country Club and the job that Greg D'Antonio has done there a big multi-year renovation project. First off, welcome to the podcast. It's great to finally have you on. You're a regular podcast to yourself. How are you doing? What's going on? Matt, thanks for having me. It's great to, to be here, and it's a pleasure working with you and Guy on these stories and the other projects that we collaborate on. It's been a lot of fun. Well, your debut on Beyond the Page is long overdue, and I'm glad we're remedying this before the end of 2020 seemed appropriate in November. Again, two stories, including the cover multi-year majesty. How do you execute long range improvements without halting play or draining the budget? Greg D'Antonio and the Concord country club team are taking project management to the next level. This is a great 2000 word story. There are some really great photographs that go with it as well. And without spoiling too much of the story for readers who are certainly interested in how you handle a project like this. What did you learn from Greg? And and I guess let's dive into the basics of what Greg did uh, before anything else. Essentially, what Greg did was work within the limitations that the club gave him. When he got the idea of doing this renovation and collaborating with Jim Nagel, who has worked at Concord for a number of years, he knew there were going to be limits. The club gave him the mandate to do this with the stipulation that there be no assessment to the members 
and that the work would not interfere with play. So that was his starting point, figuring out how do we do this without intruding on play and without costing the members any more money than necessary. So the project was put together with those stipulations in mind. The advantage that Greg had was having the long relationship with Jim Nagel. They respected each other. They had a good working relationship even before Greg came to Concord. Prior to that, he was an assistant at Chester Valley, where Jim has also done some work. So they were familiar with each other, so they could essentially start from there. And the idea was to restore the character of what was a Flynn golf course at Concord and adapt to modern technology and what have you, restore a couple of features that had been taken out over the course of time. But I think at the heart of this story is how they went about doing it. And what they did was keep the work in-house. Essentially, 90% of the project was handled by Greg and his team rather than outsourcing it. And that's the key to it. I've talked with some superintendents in recent months who have handled some renovation projects, some reconstruction projects, and this seems to be more of a trend uh, than in recent years in more keeping it in-house, keeping... Uh, your own staff members, your own crew members, a big part of the project. Have you noticed this becoming more and more of a trend as as time goes on, as we got through the 2010s and now into the 2020s, more superintendents, more directors opting for the in-house route? I see it as a trend going forward. I have not really had the chance to talk to a lot of people who have been doing renovations but I see it as the trend going forward simply for financial reasons. In Concord's case, Concord is a club that is your classic mid-range private golf club. It is located uh, in extreme southern Pennsylvania, just north of the Delaware line. For a time, it was owned by Wilmington Country Club, which is just down the road. So they've never been in a situation where money was not an object, if you follow me. Mm -hmm. So if they were going to do this, they had to do it in an economical fashion. And the key to this working was both the architect and the superintendent understanding what had to be done, but also understanding the cost element, and finding out, figuring out ways to do it in such a way that it would work financially, and also dealing with the other factors that come into any renovation. For instance, the last phase of this was supposed to start, actually was supposed to start about now, but the decision has been made to not started until after the new year. They did not want to get started now, which is when the handicap season ends in the Philadelphia area, which is in another couple of days. Get it started up, then shut it down for the holidays, and then start it up again. So they're going to go ahead and start right after the new year, actually on New Year's Day, I believe. And 
hopefully finish it by April the 1st when the handicap season for 2021 begins. And obviously there are factors that could get in the way, specifically the weather, but they have a plan in place to be able to do that, to get it finished in three months. Aggressive timeline, to be sure. You include a few numbers in this story that will probably be of interest to turf pros around the country who read this. One of those numbers is that Greg's crew has removed about 90% of the 2,000 trees that have been taken out over the course of the project. Not many turf pros like trees. The opportunity to get rid of 2,000 of them will probably bring a twinkle to the eyes of a lot of people. The other number, though, is more important. And that is that, and I'm, I'm quoting directly from this, doing the renovation in-house is saving D'Antonio's employers a considerable amount of money. It's estimated the project will cost the club about $400,000. Had the work been contracted out, the sum would have been an estimated $650,000. So this, this growing trend of keeping it in-house that's a quarter of a million dollars, and not just a quarter of a million dollars, but more than a third of of the cost. Incredible. And that really is the key to it, mm-hmm. making it work financially. Uh, Greg decided that keeping it in-house was really the only option. So it becomes a matter of having a crew, having a team, that is capable of doing this kind of work. You mentioned the tree removal. The only trees they did not remove were those that were just so large that they did not have the equipment to remove them, or those that were near property lines or maybe power lines or something like that. In those instances, they went to an outside contractor to do that. But the vast majority of the tree removal work was done in-house, and obviously the vast majority of everything else. So it becomes a matter of having a crew that is capable of doing that kind of work, that has been trained to do that kind of work. And as Greg pointed out, it offers a lot of advantages to the members of his crew because they're getting a chance to do something a little bit different. As he points out, doing the same routine jobs day after day can get a little monotonous in any line of work. So they're having a chance to broaden their horizons in terms of doing something new, doing something different, working on a course renovation. And furthermore, if they decide to go out of his assistance end up applying for head superintendent jobs down the road, they can put this on their resume Mm -hmm. and say, I have the experience of working on this major renovation. And that's something that's going to appeal to a future employer and taking it one step farther, when they go to their new employer, they become a head superintendent. They're going to know how to do a renovation in-house. So one thing leads to another. And to answer your original question, and this is hearing from Jim and hearing from Greg, yeah, this likely is the way things are going to evolve going forward. As uh, both of them pointed out, there will always be certain clubs where money 
won't be as much of an object. Money is always an object for everybody, but there will be some clubs where it will be less of a concern. That top 1% that everybody knows about. But the vast majority of clubs are having to watch their bottom lines very carefully, particularly now. So if they can do this kind of work in-house, I strongly think that's the direction they're going to go in. They will have their superintendents do as much of this kind of thing in-house. Now, if you're the superintendent, you have to make sure you train your crew properly so that they can handle this kind of work. The other facet of it is superintendent and the architect that you're working with have to be on the same page, and that's where Jim and Greg had an advantage from their long history of working together because, as is often the case with a renovation, as you know, Matt, the architect can come up with the greatest creation ever, but it doesn't do you any good if the superintendent can't maintain it properly. Mm-hmm. So you have to have that element. It is the kind of project that benefits everybody involved as long as it's done properly, and as you just said, as long as it's maintained properly moving forward. As long as it's maintained properly, which means the architect and the shaper have to build something, design and build something that can be maintained properly. And most of the time that happens. uh, There are occasions, I suppose, where it does not. But if architect and superintendent are thinking alike, then uh, that should not be too much of a problem. Well, a fantastic cover story. Again, multi-year majesty, the cover story. There is some great words of wisdom from both uh, Greg D'Antonio and Jim Nagel, the superintendent and the architect, respectively. You had one other story in the November issue, and this was so well-sourced and tackled so many important questions that turf pros are juggling around in their mind as 2020 goes into 2021. Stay or go, the events of 2020 force numerous tactical changes. Superintendents discuss the prospects of altered practices extending into 2021. And these are primarily changes that came about because of all of the initial reactions to the COVID-19 pandemic in the spring. Bunker rakes, chief among them, among, among some other things. What did you learn in talking with really a who's who of big names and and some folks that maybe GCI readers have recognized over the years as well? I really got a variety of opinions, to say the least. Uh, Superintendents, to their credit, will generally be pretty straightforward about the concerns that they have about the industry. It's one of the reasons that I enjoy writing for GCI so much. Going forward with something like this, I think they feel there will be certain practices that are going to stay, uh, specifically in the area of bunker maintenance. I think a lot of clubs that took the bunker rakes out won't put them back. I think that you're going to see maybe some mowing practices change a little bit. What you won't see changed is the intervals between chemical applications of those kinds of things. In that area, 
as was pointed out to me by a number of people, the turf issue that you're dealing with isn't concerned with the pandemic or anything else. You still have to make the applications when they have to be made. But there may be some other factors that will be different. Bunker maintenance is the one that comes to mind. You may not see uh, ball washers return to the golf course, uh, that kind of thing. Water coolers on the golf course may be a thing of the past, and really they are in a lot of places now anyway, even before the pandemic. But I think the change that people will notice the most will be uh, it will involve bunker maintenance. I mean, you're not going to see rakes in bunkers in a lot of places. The bunkers may not be maintained as often. So if there were going to be one significant change to the golf industry going forward, I think that's going to be it. And with less attention or at least less time given to bunkers with fewer on-course accoutrement like uh, ball washers and, and other things that we're so used to, uh, water coolers, etc. It will be interesting, I think, Rick, looking forward to next year and beyond, what effect it has on the turf itself if the course conditions improve. Because the other issue is just crew size. And a lot of superintendents and directors have had to do just as much with crews that have not returned to normal size. Some have, and, and some actually never even uh, had reduced numbers. They might have reduced hours. Um, but a lot of guys are still working with fewer people on their crew, too. That is the case. And again, I got mixed responses on this one. Uh, some felt that the reduced crew sizes would remain, that going forward they would have to follow the do more with less model, while other people were saying that really isn't sustainable to maintain the golf course properly, to maintain our golf course properly. We need a certain number of people. What may help in that direction if you are spending less time maintaining bunkers, for instance, or working around or maintaining you know, water coolers or ball washers or that kind of thing, you've got more man hours to spend on doing the essential things, uh, whether it's mowing, whether it's a fungicide application, whatever. But I think there are going to be some, some changes going forward that I think golfers in many instances may not notice or they may notice them, but it really won't affect play very much. Maybe your superintendent will spend less time maintaining the rough areas. That's the other one that came up. Um, less time maintaining the flower beds around the clubhouse or whatever, uh, and focus more on areas that are in play and concentrating their man hours there because that's what impacts the golfer the most. So you may see more of that. Uh, I didn't get into it in this story, but reduced water usage is another factor, and courses have been going in this direction for a while. So you may see less water on the fairways and certainly less water in the rough areas. So you may see courses evolving more naturally, if you will, going into 2021 and beyond. 
this will be a big year, I think, for the industry, not just in numbers of folks coming out, number of rounds and, and all those great metrics, but just in terms of how the reactions to the initial stage of the pandemic stick around and, and how they change various parts of maintenance. Uh, like you said, water usage is, is chief on that list, very high on that list. I think uh, one comment I got from one of my sources in this story hit it on the head. The core golfer is not going to be that upset if certain maintenance practices aren't followed anymore, if there aren't uh, ball washers on the course, if the rough areas aren't mown every other day or whatever. The person who is serious about golf that really cares about the game isn't going to be bothered by that. It's going to be interesting to see how people that are really serious about the game react to all this, but also people who may have been more casual golfers or taking up the game for the first time, how they're going to react to it. Will they need uh, ball washers or well-maintained bunkers to still come out and enjoy the game? Will that be necessary for them, or will they enjoy the game for its own sake and not be as concerned. So many great questions for 2021 and beyond. Rick Wolfel, again, two wonderful stories in the November issue, Multi-Year Majesty, about the renovation project at Concord Country Club, and as we were just talking about, stay or go, how the reaction to 2020 and the pandemic will last or not moving forward. Rick, you have a lot of balls in the air. You always do. Among your other projects, a quick plug for the Women's Golf Report, a bi-weekly podcast uh, focused on women's golf at the amateur and professional levels. You've had some great guests recently. Uh, Tanya Durgel was your most recent guest. She's the director of instruction at Brentwood Country Club in L.A. But just in, in recent episodes, uh, the biggest name, at least to me, is Dr. Renee Powell, who I hope everybody listening to this podcast knows but all over the place and, and really great guests. Uh, folks should listen to this podcast as well. Greatly appreciate that, Matt. We've had uh, a wonderful group of guests who have given of their time, Dr. Powell being probably the most prominent, uh, Jan Beljan, the mm -hmm. president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, was a fascinating guest, and she actually was responsible for my being able to connect with Dr. Powell, so I give her... Uh, immense credit uh, for that. But hearing the insights of these folks and some of them uh, working in the industry as club professionals, uh, our next guest actually uh, will be Joanna Coe, who competed in the uh, KPMG Women's PGA Championship uh, a couple of weeks ago. She was one of the club professionals in the field and won the uh, PGA Women's Club Pro in 2019. Uh, She's uh, next up, and that will be posted in a couple of weeks. But hearing the perspectives of uh, all these women and how they have gotten involved in the golf industry and how they have advanced their careers, in some cases, as uh, was the case with Tanya, hearing how uh, her teaching philosophy has evolved, they've been fascinating people to talk to and hopefully uh, very informative for our listeners. Again, the Women's Golf Report available wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Rick Wolfel, before I let you go, anything else you have to plug or promote? Uh, right now, Matt, we're pretty much caught up on the golf side. We've got a couple of more podcasts to do. The last new podcast is scheduled to go up uh, the Sunday before the U.S. Women's Open. That will conclude the uh, 2020 season with 26 new shows. That is our plan for this year, and we're already starting to think about what we want to do for 2021 and beyond. And uh, we have a couple of other golf-related ideas that we're kicking around that hopefully will come to fruition. But thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. A long overdue debut by Rick Wolfel on Beyond the Page. We will not go 12 episodes before having you on again. I look forward to the next one. Thanks so much, Rick. My next guest on Beyond the Page is Brian Bressler. He is the equipment and shop manager at Benita Country Club. You can read about Brian and how he and his techs handle more than $5 million in equipment in Lee Carr's story, Respect for the Titans, in the November issue. But for now, let's dive in. Brian, welcome to Beyond the Page. How are you doing? What's going on? Hey, how are you doing, Matt? Happy to be here. And before we get going, again, my apologies. I had... The fact that you are on Central Time in my mind when I sent my original message to you and you came back and you said, let's do this time. And I completely whiffed on the fact that that is also Central Time. And so uh, you're doing this an hour early. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem. So you arrived at Medina in September 2018, just had your second anniversary after stints at Victoria National Golf Club in Indiana, at the Vaquero Club in Texas, the Golf Club at Harbor Shores in Michigan, the University of Notre Dame, uh, Christiana Creek Country Club in Indiana, pretty strong Midwestern roots right there uh, in and around the Chicagoland area in Indiana. How did you get into the industry and, and this part of the industry in the first place? Well, actually, I mean, uh, it's, it's probably similar to a lot of people that are listening. Uh, basically, um, a guy needed a mechanic and somebody that knew how to work on small engines and and uh, he asked if I would come down and talk to him, which I did, and I was with him. That was Christiana Creek Country Club. Didn't really know anything about the uh, turf industry, so to speak. Um, a lot of hands-on, a lot of seminars, a lot of teaching and reaching out to other techs and and uh, reading manuals and stuff like that and everything. But, yeah, I mean, pretty much it was, uh, it was an eye-opener. I never had any idea that this side of the – uh, industry even existed, like most people don't, and that. But yeah, that's pretty much how I kind of got into it. I just kind of, kind of fell into it. It's a fairly common origin story, like you said. A lot of people on the equipment side and and on the maintenance side too, uh, kind of just come into it. What was your machine background uh, ahead of then? Had you had you worked on cars or engines or or anything else before then? Well, okay, so before, I've always worked on everybody's lawnmower. Everybody had an issue with a lawnmower, they would always bring it to me. So I've, I've worked on, you know, small engines uh, pretty much my whole life uh, up to that point. Done a little bit of hydraulics uh, here and there. Uh, basically, my training basically came from high school and that in the uh, uh, agricultural class that they offered. 
so that's where I first, you know, basically uh, uh, technically uh, started tearing down engines and stuff like that was in uh, high school there and everything. Um, but I worked, you know, in uh, RV industry for a long time as well when I made the transition up to here. I'm originally from North Carolina, okay, uh, born and raised there. And when I, uh, my parents moved up, uh, when I was younger up to this area and I kind of followed suit and everything, worked in the RV industry and stuff like that. And just, uh, like I said, you know, a guy was looking for a mechanic. I always liked working with tools and small engines and stuff. So I went down and talked to him and that's kind of how it went. And it was Christiana Creek Country Club, your first stop in the industry. It's in Elkhart. And if folks don't know, Elkhart is and dubs itself the RV capital of the United States. I think they have the RV Hall of Fame in Elkhart too, right? Yes, yes. And if I'm not, don't quote me on this, but if I'm not mistaken, it's actually the RV capital of the world. The world, you're right. You're um, right, because what, yeah, what most, city anywhere most RVs in the world? Come out of there. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't make so, sense for some random European city to be the RV capital of the world, of course. Don't have as many road trips yeah. there. Right. Uh, your crew at Medina right now, I think, is still three full-time techs, and you also have four seasonal folks. How do you manage that crew? That is just, I mean, that's a great team to have, but wow. I mean, that's, what a luxury. Yeah, yeah, it is a luxury. Um, we're currently not staffed that big. Okay. Uh, currently, I my current position here at Medina is, uh, counting myself, there's three full-time, and I have one intern. Okay. currently so we're a little on the short staff side uh here for the size fleet that uh, we have and everything but as far as managing these guys these guys are really really good um i don't i don't per se have to really micromanage them here we go through uh training seminars all the time and uh basically we all kind of work together in here um it's not really as uh I guess you want to say I don't uh, dictate to them necessarily what needs to be done, but more try to lead them to uh, think outside the box. So that they see what needs to be done. I see what needs to be done. We talk about it and discuss it in the morning and uh, basically come up with a game plan on a daily, weekly basis uh, of what we want to accomplish uh, for that week and uh, or that day into the week and also into the month of things that we know is coming up uh, and equipment that's going to be used uh, soon. So, um, yeah, I I hope that answers your question (laughs) in the short term there. It does. And giving guys that sense of that ownership and and control, I imagine that's just great feedback and and obviously just great work from them too when you're, like you said, not dictating down to them when you're working with them, when you're collaborating, when you're giving them that sense of ownership and, and mastery. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's a it's a very big thing here for these guys to have a sense of ownership in what they're actually doing, and that um, it goes along with the training that me and Steve uh, agree with here, and everything. And is basically we're we're trying to get them set up to where when they take uh, their own shop, when they're when they become the equipment manager of their own shop, they already have the skill set and the tools that they need they know how it's supposed to be and that so um giving them a sense of ownership and and uh and that here in the here at medina is a very big uh training tool 
You just mentioned Steve. Steve Cook, the director of grounds operations at Medina. Speaking of working collaboratively and, and building something great, uh, you two, and this is mentioned in the story, again, Respect for the Titans, in the November issue of the magazine, you guys are in the process of, or you've already started, developing a recruiting pipeline for mechanics. What is the what is the ultimate goal with that? Because I think you've already placed one tech somewhere in the Chicagoland area, right? Yes, yeah. It would it would have been uh, uh, my assistant, Aaron DeLoof, um, that was uh, started with us in the early winter of 1819. He actually has moved on uh, to uh, equipment manager uh, right down the road here. And that, um, yes, we're, we're in the process of uh, starting up uh, kind of like a pop pipeline. And it's basically we're working with uh, local uh, colleges around here like UTI, um, which is an automotive technical institute, basically. And um, actually one of my... Uh, uh, full-time technicians here uh, was valid Victorian last year, and he decided to kind of do this uh, for a career instead of going into the automotive field. He liked this better. So um, basically, we're just trying to start out, uh, start getting a pipeline, getting uh, people interested, and let them see that uh, this is a rewarding career and and show them the possibilities that they can do. Uh, with this career, because like I said in the beginning, a lot of people, this is kind of an eye-opener when you bring them in and you interview and you talk to them. They have no idea of what uh, this side of the industry consists of at all. And it's kind of, you know, you see that, you see their eyes get real big and they have that kind of aha moment. And that when you start talking to them and tell them uh, what they're going to be doing and what the size of the fleet is and stuff like that, so... Um, yeah, that's kind of what we're uh, in the process of doing is uh, getting other technicians in here, or people that are curious about this side of the industry, get them trained up, get them to the uh, standard uh, that needs to be kind of set um, in this industry, and then have them take uh, take uh, take equipment manager position at a different course. That's fantastic that you've been there a little more than two years. I think Steve is going on about two and a half years. He got there earlier in 2018, and you guys have already managed to build this up and, and make this into uh, part of the, the crew at Medina. That's fantastic. Yeah, yes, yes it is. It's, it's a very um, – uh, the general manager, Robert Searcy, uh, here, he is also on board with this, and uh, this is basically the game plan – when Steve hired me, he told me what he wanted to do. I told him what I wanted to do, what my long-term goal was uh, for the industry. And uh, I met with Robert as well, and he told me what he would like to see us do. And it basically was a consensus all the way around. We all want the same thing. You mentioned uh, a minute ago when you're bringing guys in for interviews and you're telling them about everything they'll do, everything they're working on. Uh, there are a couple of big numbers uh, it mentioned in the story. The first is the office itself, the maintenance facility at Medina recently received a $300,000 renovation. And I guess a big part of that was to show appreciation. This is what Steve Cook said, to kind of show appreciation uh, for you and, and the rest of the uh, the technicians there. Uh, the other number is just the sheer size of the fleet. I think you have, is it about $5 million in yeah, uh, equipment uh, inventory at Medina? Yeah, it's, 
<clears throat> it's actually just a little bit over. It's about five point oh, five million. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so uh, w- when I talk to people and and we start, you know, they ask, you know, how much you got into this, and and you basically, you know, you can whip out pictures and and which I hope some of the pictures make it into the news article and stuff that I sent, but. Uh, you start showing them pictures of what it used to be and what it is now, and that, um, and then also when you start talking about the fleet, uh, when you when you talk to people and they're like, well, how many fairway mowers do you got? And you tell them, well, I have 13 on site. You know, that's where people are like, whoa. You know, when you say, well, how many walk mowers do you got? And you're like, well, I have 52 walk mowers. Um, you know that's where people start really kind of getting, um, I don't want to say sticker shock necessarily, but that you, they can start to see where it starts to add up real fast. And that, um, and a lot of guys that don't even know the cost of some of the stuff, uh, of the equipment. And when you start talking about, well, you know, an average triplex is $30,000, you know, an average walker is anywhere from 12 to 15, and everything, you know, that's when they're like, whoa, you know, this this is legit. This is uh, definitely something I may want to take a look at. And in terms of, you know, you've got triplexes that cost as much as a car. You've got walk-behinds that cost as much as a motorcycle or a bike. Um, just getting the guys to buy in and treat the equipment as if it was purchased with their own money, I know is a big part of it. Another thing that you do is you encourage your guys to attend manufacturer demonstrations. Now, I don't know how common that is, but where did you pick up that practice? Because that makes all the sense in the world, and it just seems really smart. I basically, I took it on as when I started. uh, So when I was at Christiana Creek, I didn't have an assistant. When I was at the University of Notre Dame, I did have an assistant. And he really didn't know anything about any, he didn't know anything really uh, about maintenance per se, but that can be taught. Um, that could be a, a, a good thing and a bad thing, but uh, for the most part, good, because you can teach anybody anything as long as they're willing to learn, and that, which he was. But he didn't know any, anything as far as what new products are out there and stuff. So it was kind of around that time it was like, okay, if I'm ever put in a situation to where I can get the guys to – uh, manufacturer training and manufacturer seminars and stuff like that and demonstrations to see new equipment. It's a good thing to do because uh, the industry is ever-changing. I mean, you know, John Deere's coming out with autonomous mowers now and stuff like that and everything. And it's really important that they see how the industry is starting to evolve because they're going to be a part of that. So it's very, very important for them to keep up with that. Um, just like it would be with the automotive industry when they come out with the newest and latest, greatest make and model of the new car. Um, a lot of their uh, ASE uh, master mechanics have to go to uh, classes to learn how to work on those cars. So it's, it's basically the same principle there. You mentioned earlier you're a little understaffed right now. At some point soon, probably not 2020, but early 2021, get back closer to that crew size where you've got full-time and and seasonal folks when you go into interviewing and you're talking with and hiring potential staffers what are you looking for brian uh basically when i do interviews i am i am looking to find out one if they're willing to learn 
Okay, I'm looking at their personality more than experience necessarily. Um, here in the shop, it, it is a little tight. It's it's not a very big shop. I mean, it's big enough for what we need to do and everything. But when you start putting that many people in there, everybody's got to be able to work together. And that, so I what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for uh, guys that are going to be team players that – can get along with people really good. The teaching stuff I'm not worried about. Like I said, as long as somebody's uh, willing to learn, you can teach anybody anything. And that, um, so basically personality, whether or not they're going to fit with our operation here uh, as a whole, um, not just knowledge. I mean, knowledge has something to, uh, has a part to do with it. But basically we're looking at personality and we're looking at their uh, ability to want to learn to um uh, want to get into this industry, and uh, and we can help them along uh, in doing that by uh, providing training and a, a clean, safe environment to work and everything. Um, one of the biggest things that uh, we do here in the environment is I try to make it a uh, an area where if guys make a mistake, you know, an environment where if they're going to make mistakes and everything like that, you know, you have to let them make mistakes and let them know that it's okay if you make a mistake uh, as long as you learn from it and everything. So um, that's the type of environment we look for, and that's when we hire somebody, that's kind of what we're looking for is we're looking to make sure that they're going to fit into uh, what type of program we're trying to run and uh, uh, here and get along with everybody and work together as a team as a whole, um, not just the shop but in crew and everything. What a fantastic approach. Uh, and again, this is why uh, so many reasons you give that sense of ownership, you give that sense of mastery. Uh, it's not hard to see why guys buy in and, and you're building this pipeline. And I imagine there will be a lot of shop managers coming out of Medina as long as you and Steve are working together there. Well, that, we're hoping so. We're hoping so. Um, it's, it's a very rewarding, to me, it's a very rewarding career. I know some guys get into it and they just, you know, it's really not for them. And that's fine, too, and everything. But, is, I mean, I have, like I said, I have an intern from UTI in here right now. He's picking it up extremely well. He's a really good self-starter. Um, I, I show him, uh, give him training on uh, what we're doing in here and stuff, and he, he can master it uh, pretty pretty fast actually and he's still going to uti to be a diesel mechanic but i told him i said as long as you're here i'm going to train you and teach you what it takes to be an equipment manager of a golf course and he's doing really good and that's that's really the program that we want to uh we want to keep moving forward with here look forward to hearing more about what's coming out of medina if you want to read more about Medina and a little bit more about uh, technicians and shop. Brian Bressler featured in the story Respect for the Titans by Lee Carr in the November issue of Golf Course Industry Magazine. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yes, yes, anytime, anytime, anytime. No problem at all. I appreciate you having me. My thanks again to Brian Bressler and Rick Wolfel and to everybody who helped us produce another great issue of Golf Course Industry, which will be available online on Friday and in your mailbox a little later this month. 
My thanks, too, to you for listening to Beyond the Page and the rest of our podcasts here on the Superintendent Radio Network and for keeping this great industry moving forward every day. For Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano and the rest of the golf course industry team, I'm Managing Editor Matt Lowell. Thanks so much for listening.